welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. In coronavirus news, a spotlight on beer and coronavirus. France to launch 140 million euro scheme to distill wine. New greenhouse restaurant in Amsterdam. And we have an update from Burgundy. In other news, PG&E uh, penalized 1.9 billion US dollars for California wildfires. Champagne winemaker scammed out of 135,000 euros. Wachau becomes Austria's newest DAC. New glass recycling targets in the EU. Ribera Sacra anger at wine advocate. And as ever, our wine of the week. One of the themes of this crisis has been that bigger companies have been able to continue business, despite projections of hugely decreased profits this year, while smaller companies are struggling to keep on going until the crisis subsides, with the possible outcome of a lot of consolidation over the next few months and years. In New York, the local Brewers Association complained that mid-sized breweries have suffered greatly due to their reliance on on on-trade sales, and they also fear that the bigger drinks companies will come in and buy them, escalating a trend over the last few years of craft breweries being bought by mainstream players. The Brewers Association surveyed its members and found that 44% of them believe that they can survive the next three months. Of course, a huge reason for this fear is that many bars and restaurants will also fail to survive the next three months, causing a knock-on effect that will ripple from sector to sector. However, the sales of alcohol continue to rise in the US, creating a very lopsided picture of the drinks industry right now. Sales ending the week of the 2nd of May were even greater than in mid-March when Americans stocked up in alcohol as the lockdown came into effect. As the pod reported last week, the spirits category is benefiting the most by 38.6% on this time last year. Wine is also up by 35.8%. Beer sales are also on the increase, but by far less. 18.6% higher compared to last year and 5.7% compared to the previous week. Supermarket sales are central to these figures with a 25% increase in sales of alcohol, although beer is only up by 12.6%. Market research firm firm Nielsen estimates that off-promise sales of alcohol need to continue rising at a 22% rate to offset the decline in on-sales, although that is of little comfort to bars and restaurants that remain closed. And in the UK, sales of beer fell by 13% in March, with the expectation of far worse figures for April as the lockdown went into full effect. As with New York, small independent brewers have been the worst hit, with sales down by 82% since the end of March. Manchester brewery Cloudwater stated that their sales were 60 to 70% down and that they were operating at 30 to 40% of previous production, commenting that online sales were up but were only enough to help them survive. Meanwhile, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson declared that cafes and restaurants could reopen in July, a vague promise that had little substance behind it and which Green King CEO Nick McKenzie dismissed as irresponsible. A key issue for brewers is when to start making beer again. Start too early and more beer will be wasted once again. And even if cafes, pubs, and restaurants are able to open again, what happens if they are forced to close in another period of lockdown, as happened in Hong Kong? Similar issues in France, where Brasseur de France, a trade association representing 98% of France's brewers, stated that 10 million litres of beer may have to be destroyed. Their surveys also show that 70% of breweries have lost 50% of their turnover, that 40% of breweries have cut their production by 60%, and that 25% of breweries are shut entirely. They also commented on the struggle that small breweries face, in part because they make beers that are unpasteurised and have a short shelf life. 
If there's nowhere to sell them, then there's nothing that can be done with them apart from throwing them away. However, in Japan, a brewer has come up with something of a solution. Kyuchi Brewery are collecting unsold beer and distilling it to make gin. Restaurants and bars send unused beer back to the brewery, who then distill it and send it back again. Gin, of course, having a much longer shelf life than beer. For every 100 liters of beer, 8 liters of gin can be made. One client asked the brewery to distill more than 20,000 liters of beer. So difficult times for the, the beer industry. Even though uh, people are drinking more beer at home, as they are wine and spirits, it's not enough to offset all the decline in sales in bars and restaurants, and it's difficult to know how these breweries can adapt and recover. Well, and I suppose the wine industry has an upper hand with the shelf life issue, uh, with brewers you know, really being on a timeline in terms of when they can start brewing beer and having it still be fresh and ready for the customer, whereas wine, you have a little bit longer lead time. One of the advantages of the beer industry was that it could be made quickly and distributed quickly and consumed quickly, and that's not so much an advantage right now. So it really depends when bar and restaurants open again. But what about... Um, coronavirus news for wine. Well, continuing the talk of having to distill beer to avoid unprofitable loss, the French government is to launch a 140 million euro scheme, which could see 2 million hectoliters of wine being distilled. The biggest French farming union had called for a bigger scheme of 500 million euros to support 3 million hectoliters of distillation and sees this package as merely the first step. The excess wine that cannot be sold will be distilled for several products, including hydroalcoholic gel. On top of that, the government called for Europe-wide measures to deal with the 25% tariffs imposed on wine by the USA, as the pod has previously reported, which would include government loans. In Amsterdam, a restaurant is trialing a new social distancing method of dining. The restaurant is a waterfront vegan bar called Mediumatic, and we think it's pronounced Eaton, but it's spelt E-T-E-N. And they have created quarantine greenhouses, which sit by the water and in which up to three people can isolate themselves from other guests while enjoying a four-course plant-based menu. Sounds yummy. They hope to open on the 21st of May, although it will require permission from the Amsterdam authorities. Even so, they're already fully booked until the end of June. So the Dutch do like their plants. The plan in the Netherlands is to reopen outdoor spaces on the 1st of June, but maybe they'll be able to get ahead of that date due to the isolating aspect of the restaurant. And the innovation continues. Meanwhile, in other news, the growing season goes on in Burgundy, as it does elsewhere in the Northern Hemisphere. The hashtag is hashtag la vine continue. It's two to three weeks ahead of 2019, with flowering, which occurred in early June last year, underway already. As the growing season develops, a key concern for Burgundy producers is the availability of labor. They've just got by so far, but when the harvest starts in September, the question is whether there will be enough workers to pick the grapes and do the sorting. Burgundy is still a region which relies heavily on manual labor rather than mechanized methods, and producers are looking to the government on guidance on how to deal with potential labor shortage, perhaps creating a mechanism to allow laborers to travel to the region. This uncertainty comes at a time when, as with other regions, sales of Burgundy are in decline. Exports by volume were down 0.7% in the first quarter of 2019 compared to 2018, although that barely factors in the effect of coronavirus. However, sales of Burgundy were bolstered in countries where Burgundy has a strong retail presence, such as the UK, Scandinavia and Canada. Sales of lower-end wines, such as Macon, Cramon and lesser-known villages were particularly strong. But in markets where Burgundy relies on hotels and restaurants, such as France itself, there's much more of a struggle. 
In fact, hospitality outlets account for half of Burgundy's sales around the world, and it's difficult to make up for the loss in sales as Burgundy hasn't developed a direct-to-consumer model found, for instance, in California. A few producers have set up online sales, and others have created a click-and-collect system for local customers. But not many have been able to take advantage of that kind of sales outlet. So producers are anticipating the worst, not helped by the 25% tax imposed on European wine by the US, which they are, of course, campaigning to be removed. Well, commenting um, from sort of an on-the-ground perspective on both of these issues facing Burgundy, uh, I know when I lived in Dijon uh, as a student of wine, uh, it was very difficult to get tastings with any of the producers. Um, they had Many of them had no online presence, uh, and now I, I've seen that changing over the last few years. Um, but of course, it's not as dialed in as they have it here in California, for example. So I can see why they must be struggling. And then from the labor front, you know, I remember uh, doing a harvest in Fisan in Burgundy. And I think about 80% of the people helping picking grapes uh, were from other countries, from Eastern Europe, for example. So I imagine with travel bans and, you know, it just not being that easy these days, uh, they're going to run into some real issues. Let's see how they adapt. In California, electricity provider PG&E have been penalized just over $1.9 billion for its role in the wildfires of 2017 and 2018, finding the company partly culpable for 15 fires. PG&E had already been subject to lawsuits worth up to $30 billion, which have forced the company to agree to a bankruptcy exit plan. The $1.9 billion penalty is to be spent on wildfire-related expenditures, with $114 million for corrective actions to ensure public safety. In March, PG&E also pled guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter over the 2018 campfire. It must be noted, though, that they weren't held responsible for all the fires in 2017 and 2018. The Tubbs fire, in which 23 people were killed, was caused by a private electrical system next to a residential home. This news has really uh, slipped under the radar. I just caught it by accident, as it were, given all attention is elsewhere. But it's really huge news for the, what is almost the uh, monopoly in California for electricity and gas to be found guilty for causing, in part, the wildfires in 2017 and 2018, which have really devastated California communities. So really big news and really big penalties that they have to pay. An astonishing story from Champagne, where it has been revealed that a winemaker was conned out of €135,000 and 50,000 bottles of wine over the course of five years in an elaborate scam involving five men, including a policeman claiming to be a secret agent. The winemaker, Hugues Bé, his full name has not been disclosed, was fooled into thinking that he was giving money and bottles of champagne to secure important deals with international figures such as President Obama, the Moroccan royal family and the Emperor of China. They refer to the winemaker as the very important madman, that was their nickname for him, and he has been described as, quote, a psychologically frail individual with megalomaniac delusions. The ringleader of the gang is referred to as Ahmad Zed, who worked for France's protection service for high-profile individuals, including the Moroccan royal family. In 2007, he convinced Ugbe to provide 50,000 bottles of wine and 40,000 euros in marketing fees to secure important contracts. 
Ahmed Zed even flew the winemaker to Morocco to meet members of the royal family, who, surprise, surprise, didn't show up. Oog Bey was also promised a role in the next Alain Delon film, and a job as a scriptwriter for the United Nations, and he gave the gang €20,000 to transport a plane gifted to him by Barack Obama. Having previously made 450,000 bottles a year, the winemaker went bankrupt in 2012, which is when he realised he had been swindled by the gang. And they now face charges of abuse of weakness and and extortion. Their defence is that the whole thing was merely a joke. The winemaker's lawyer concluded, Usually, in this type of case, you get the weak exploiting the even weaker. In this case, they methodically fleeced him like true professionals and refined psychologists. Well, what a tangled web of extortion. It certainly sounds like a film, and I imagine someone's going to pick this up in the future and produce something along those lines. I look forward to it, and hopefully it'll involve someone drinking wine from a tanker as it drives down the road. Some pretty weird stories recently. Wachau, which has long been considered one of Austria's highest quality wine regions, has become the country's newest and 15th DAC the equivalent of an appellation in France, which will provide some clarity to the quality and style of the wines. In the new designation, Wachau will have three tiers in accordance with DAC regulations. Gebietswein, regional wine, Ortswein, village wine, and Riedenwein, single vineyard. Hand harvesting will also be mandatory. Ortswein is an increasingly important designation in Austria, and Wachau has 22 villages which will be able to put their name on the label. For the Ortswein category, the wine must be single varietal from one of nine grapes, Grunerweltliner, Riesling, Weissburgunder, Grauburgunder, Chardonnay, Neuburger, Muscatella, Sauvignon Blanc, and Traminer. The regional classification, Gebietswein, allows 17 varieties and can come from anywhere in Wachau. The highest here, Riedenwein, can only be made from Grunerweltliner and Riesling from one of 157 defined vineyard sites, cannot be chapitalized, and must have no discernible oak aging. Although Wachau is only now becoming a DAC, it's always had its own internal labeling system, which will continue to be used. Steinfeder, Federspiel, and Schmerag. Some challenging German terms for Katie to pronounce that. I think I, I do, did quite well. I think so too. I do sympathize. It's, it does make selling German and Austrian wine quite difficult when those terms are so uh, tricky to pronounce. That aside, um, I do want to comment that I've never really understood why Wachau has, wasn't already a DAC, given that neighboring Kremstal and Kampdal already were. I've never understood it either. Um, I was there last year, and um, this is part of an ongoing kind of classification of the three regions, which kind of run into each other. And they're really mapping the, the terroir of the regions and the vineyards and which ones uh, where Grunewaldliner works best, where Riesling works best. And so I think this is part of that redesignation of the regions. But it's still quite confusing that Wachau was never made a DAC in the first place, because it's really considered the greatest of uh, Austria's regions. Although I think Kremstal and Kamptal are on par with them. Sure. Well, I look forward to trying these wines. <laughs> The Comité Européen des Entreprises Van, CEEV, has joined a Europe-wide group called the Circular Economy Platform for Glass Collection and Recycling, a catchy term, which aims to have a 90% glass recycling rate by 2030, compared to the current rate of 76%. 
The focus of the group isn't limited to wine, but as 90% of European wine is bottled in glass, the importance of recycling is clear, and the CEEV stated their pride in collaborating with the group to promote recycling and sustainability. Research has found that 80% of European consumers still prefer their wine packaged in glass, rather than cans, boxes or kegs. Another of the group's targets is to improve the quality of recycled glass so that it can be reused. Currently, only 52% of recycled glass is reused for production. Ribera Sacra, an exciting and emerging wine region in Galicia, northwest Spain, this week issued a strongly worded press release rebuking an overview of the region's wines released a couple of days previously in The Wine Advocate. They began the press release congratulating the Ribera Sacra producers who had received high scores. Guimaro was a producer particularly singled out for attention, with seven wines getting between 93 and 98 points. But then the release went on to state that the wine advocate had included wines in the review which did not come from Ribera Sacra, from the Ribera Sacra DO, that is, and that some other publications which had shared the wine advocate's piece had repeated that error. Their statement clarified that the Ribera Sacra designation can only be used by wineries with the permission to do so, and that they are working to avoid the wrongful use of the names Vinos de Ribera Sacra and call on media publications not to use the Ribera Sacra name for wineries that don't legally carry it. The statement then went on to list the wines rated by the wine advocate that are designated Ribera Sacra Dio, and which all receive scores in the 90s. So we don't really know what to make of this story, do we? Um, this press release was um, released only in Spanish, and it seemed a little um, tetchy, uh, because the review that uh, the Wine Advocate published of Ribera Sacra is extremely positive, very lengthy, and um, would really attract people's attention to the region. But they're being very particular about what counts for Ribera Sacra and what doesn't, because some of these producers make wine in Ribera Sacra, but they're not based there. I think that's what we've got. Right. Luis Gutierrez, which is the reviewer for Wine Advocate, wrote a rave review about an overview of the region and a very interesting article. So anyone who are uh, subscribers to Wine Advocate, I encourage you to read it. Um, However, I guess it just poses the question about differentiating producers who are actually growing grapes and making wine in Ribera Sacra, but don't necessarily fit in the DO's Uh, regulations. And we all know in Spain, uh, sometimes, you know, producers fall outside of these DOs and can be some of the champions for the regions. Yeah, so for example, is Raul Perez. And so the list that they approved um, contained one of his wines, which isn't made under his name. But so the wine advocate included two of his wines, which uh, are under his name, but which weren't included by Ribera Sacra. So it's all very confusing. And it does seem a little petty, I think. Well, we'll see how it all shakes out. I'm sure we'll see more news and comments on this in the week ahead. And now for our wine of the week. Well, this week, our wine revolves around a question we often pose. How important is the label? And can a truly bad label prevent consumers from buying truly great wine? We've often paraphrased the answer to this question as... If the label's that bad, the wine must be good, otherwise no one would buy it. 
Yes, as we've mentioned on the pod before, we're firm believers on buying a wine solely on the quality of the label. It's not always the case, but we feel that if a producer has put that much effort into a label, then they will have done on the wine too. Some top traditional producers don't seem to feel that way though. Uh, Maybe they think that their name is so well known and their wine is so good that they don't have to put any effort into presentation. The wine speaks for itself. But it's still a surprise that champagne producers who are so concerned about appearance, presentation, image, marketing, don't put more focus on how their bottles look. Some, of course, do. Uh, Tatanger have an art series with a vintage wine released each year with a specially commissioned work of art on the bottle, which is visually stunning and a great piece of marketing. Some producers in champagne, however, do not pay as much detail to the presentation. For example, Tatanger. Because this week we had the Brut Rosé from Tassinger and the packaging is simply appalling. In direct contrast to the art series, which is fantastic. The glass is clear, highlighting the unusually bright pink appearance of the wine and making it look cheap and garish. This for a $70 bottle. The label is simple and traditional and not designed to draw attention. Again, it looks and feels cheap, more like a $5 bottle from Corbel or some other low-end producer. There is absolutely nothing about the design which would persuade a consumer to buy it. And yet you did buy it, Matthew. And that's, of course, because Tatanger is a world-famous producer whom consumers will buy regardless of the packaging. And the wine was stunning. We'll say that. But nevertheless, how can a producer, who seems in general so attuned to the importance of their image, release their rosé in such an unattractive bottle? You see the likes of Laurent Perrier, uh, Runart. I mean, their rosés are impeccably packaged. Uh, So we were very surprised by this. But let me just reiterate that the wine was fantastic. Well, I um, gave you this wine blind, and you're quite surprised by the color. It's Mm. um, a lot pinker than you would expect from champagne. But um, you you loved it. You thought it was delicious. And then I brought the bottle out to you and you just had a face of disgust. You just couldn't believe that the bottle was just so ugly to look at and that you wouldn't have bought it if you hadn't known um, what it was. Yep, precisely. And, you know, looking at the wine even before seeing the bottle, I was again kind of put off by the color of of the rosé color. Um, But once I put my nose in the glass, that was it. And it's just so confusing that Tatanjay packaged this so badly because... um, so their high-end wine, uh, Le Comte de Champagne, is beautifully packaged in a really distinctive style of bottle. So it's like they just couldn't be bothered trying with this one. Yep. So it has inspired us to start another series uh, documenting these appalling labels and packaging um, that contain really, really stunning wines. So stay tuned for more examples. I can't wait to buy wine with bad labels. <laughs> Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio! Cheerio!